HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. This year, Wisconsin Cheese is hosting the very first Art of Cheese Festival to celebrate all things curds. Head to www.artofcheesefestival.com for your tickets to pastured paradise. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is possibly the beginning of my 14th season. I'm not quite sure, but uh, I am pleased uh, to welcome back to the show Tom Philpot, one of my very favorite guests. Tom uh, is now um, at the Center for Livable Future under the uh, aegis of Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he joined them as a senior research associate in 2022 after nearly 30 years in journalism and most recently, as many of you will remember, as the former food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones magazine, where he perched for uh, about 11 years. And then um, he, uh, even before that, was at Grist, which is what I think brought him to my attention. Um, but he's probably best known for his 2020 book, Perilous Bounty, which was named an editor's pick by the New York Times Book Review and shortlisted for a New York Public Library Helen Bernstein Award for Excellence in, German, in uh, Journalism. It came out in paperback in July 2022. If you haven't picked up your copy yet, I, you know, every year that goes by since the publication of that book uh, shows just how prescient Tom Philpot has been in uh, examining the impacts of climate change and disruption on our food system. So um, I hope you will uh, rush right out and purchase one of those. Anyway, we're going to talk about the farm bill today. Um, depressing, as Tom just said to me, <laughs> as the topic may be. Uh, Tom, welcome <laughs> back. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, not only is this farm bill unlikely to be uh, consolidated and passed this year, but it is also uh, potentially the most expensive farm bill in our history, potentially $1.5 trillion. So what what are the biggest drivers of that increased expense besides, of course, increasing SNAP benefits, which we know Republicans don't want to do? So, well, thank you for having me back, and congratulations on on fourteen years um, <laughs> in, like in business. Um, um, what doesn't kill you remains keep making you stronger, and that's great. Um, uh-huh. Well, of course, you know the main thing driving the the increase in farm bill spending, as you say, is the SNAP program. Um, you know, it's just a incredibly crucial program. 
Yeah. Um, it really helped the United States during the pandemic because it's one of these programs that responds pretty quickly to economic conditions. Right. Um, you know, because suddenly if you lose your job or you, you know, you literally can't go to work for some reason, you can apply for SNAP and get and, and get food assistance. And so when you have an event like the, you know, initial shock of the pandemic, when, you know, basically the economy shut down and a lot of people just couldn't work, it was incredibly important to keep, yeah. um, you know, it, it works really fast. Now, Congress um, later came through with a bunch of relief bills, um, but, it, you know, it's just a, um, a indication of how important it is that it's really responsive. Congress doesn't have to go do anything um, when there's a big crisis. It's sort of sort of built in. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, so, um, you know, it's going to rise. The, the price tag is going to rise a bit with, with food inflation, which has been significant um, in the past couple of years. Um, and, you know, I think the important thing to know about SNAP for this 2023, uh, will, which will be predict, you know, soon become the 2024 Farm Bill. Right. Um, and because it's very unlikely to pass in 2023, is that one of the big holdups is that there are there's a contingent in the U.S. House, which, you know, obviously the U.S. House is controlled by Republicans. And there's a contingent in the House mainly clustered around what's known as the Freedom Caucus yep. that just wants to slash uh, SNAP. And that's just not going to go. It's not, you know, a, a bill that slashes SNAP is not going to pass the Senate. Right. Um, it's not going to get um, President Biden's signature. So that is a complete non-starter. And yet the sort of Freedom Caucus types aren't giving up on the dream of kill you know of uh, greatly reducing snap and you know something i think is under discussed in um in in farm bill fights farm bill coverage uh, every five years and you know maybe i'm jumping uh, getting ahead of my skews here but i just want to go ahead and get it out now mm -hmm. is that you know so this coalition you know starting in 1973 they brought together the food stamp program as it was then known so now known as, um, as snap they brought that together with the farm support programs, right? And so right. into this one omnibus um, bill. And there was this coalition that you could kind of count on where these, you know, sort of farm state house representatives and senators, you know, would push for, you know, a quote unquote strong safety net, i.e., you know, lots of subsidies for, yeah. you know, uh, growers of a, a certain few crops. Uh, which aren't very popular programs with the public. They're not very well known by the public. And farm, legislators who aren't in farm states don't have much direct incentive to push for them. And that's why they, they smash it together with um, nutrition policy. And, you know, that tends to be championed um, from, you know, representatives and senators who represent big cities. Yes, um, of course. And, and so you have that, you have this, um, this kind of, you know, coalition where, you know, if there were um, some people who wanted to cut food assistance in Congress, um, they didn't really have much leverage to do that because the farm state senators would support um, food assist, uh, robust SNAP program um, because they wanted to maintain their, their, their farm subsidies and vice versa. If there, you know, was 
um, heat developing to cut farm assistance. Well, you know, your sort of, um, you know, representatives from states that have big cities wouldn't be keen to do that because they wanted to preserve SNAP. Yes. Um, so what happens, so this is this loose coalition. It's pretty, in, you know, informal, but it's functioning. And it really blows up in 2013 with the rise of the Tea Party, which sort of morphs into the Freedom Caucus. Right. And this is a group of, of folks that really don't care about either of these things. They're pretty nihilistic. Um, you know, there are some exceptions with um, in terms of foreign policy. There's some of these folks who are from states like, you know, let's say Georgia or that, that have, um, you know, farmers that, really, you know, a lot of cotton farmers or peanut yeah, farmers sure. or something like that. They're, and they get you, subsidies. You have, yeah, you, you have exceptions. But for the most part, these um, these characters are, you know, staunchly libertarian, you know, when it comes to certain things. They're not very consistent in their ideology, of course, but they would throw um, farm policy and nutrition policy under the bus. They would just assume cut both. And it has really thrown the whole thing into disarray. And yeah. you know, we're seeing, we, we've seen that play out every year since the 2000, every farm bill cycle since 2013, 2014. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing it play out now. And Really, no one knows how it's going to go because there's just so much happening in Washington. Like, you know, Speaker McCarthy, you know, would normally be trying to get a farm bill through Congress. But what he's doing instead right now is uh, working to impeach President Biden. And, you know, yeah. the same crew of sort of Freedom <laughs> Caucus types has, has pushed him into that. And so there's just complete chaos in Washington yeah. Um, but, you know, so that, so that's, you know, basically the status quo right now is that we're in this situation of chaos. Um, but, you know, I think the momentum for a sort of traditional farm bill that mostly preserves SNAP and preserves these subsidies, and we can get into what we think about them, these Ooh. crop subsidies and insurance subsidies sort right. of bolster the industrial food system. Um, you know, the, the leverage is on that side when you've got the Senate and the president um, and you've got, you know, the speaker, the sort of head of the um, House Ag Committee, this G.T. Thompson. Mm -hmm. He's very much he very much wants a status quo farm bill. So ultimately, at some point, we'll probably get one. But there's going to be a lot of machinations between now and then. And who can say? When it's going to happen, of course, we're going into a presidential election year. Yeah. So there's a lot of chaos in the forecast, but I think we're ultimately going to get a really conventional farm bill. Right. Just what we need. More of the same. You know, yeah. what's interesting to me about this is that SNAP, which makes up the biggest portion of the farm bill with over 40 million recipients. Um, but according to the Pew Research, unless I misread this completely, in 2022, SNAP accounted for less than 2.5% of total federal spending. So the idea right. that we're then going to reduce SNAP and, you know, cause even more families to become more food insecure, uh, you know, is just... I, I just don't even understand the mindset of that. And it's even more interesting, and I'm sorry to quote these, but I did make a note of these statistics. The majority of SNAP recipients are white people. And they're white people, right. not necessarily in urban centers. They're all across the farm belt. They're all in these states where, those were, where generally speaking, these voters vote for people like the Freedom Caucus. I just, you know, your head explodes looking at this stuff. Yeah, I just don't understand. The contradictions. It's really yeah, the, crazy. 
the contradictions are are just incredible. And um and you know the other thing that I think that just kind of makes her head explode is that this is one of those programs that is actually pretty popular with the public. Like if you yeah. if you do just sort of uh do polls about, you know, whether um, you know, families with children should skimp on food because they don't have enough money. They should, you know, eat less, um, you know, not get enough to eat because they don't make enough. Um, right. You know, most people say, no, that shouldn't be. And even even conservative people, even, you know, Fox News watchers, if you ask them, you know, in a in a pretty clear way. Um, whether they were, would support a program like this, it's broadly popular because, you know, people don't like to see p- other people go hungry. But there is this, there's also this cruel streak that politicians, you know, like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis really sort of play into that, you know, it, you know, sort of recasting, you know, there's a whole, you know, Victorian idea of a deserving and undeserving poor. Yes. And um and so, you know, what what the the gambit is is to is to create this this idea of the undeserving poor um and you know, let's kick them. And that that's sort of the the game that's being played. And and so you can see, I mean, I guess, you know, I who am I to psychoanalyze anyone, but you can see, you know, you know, low income white people in rural areas thinking, well, I'm part of the deserving poor, so I should be, you know, have access to SNAP benefits. And when I, you know, strike it rich with my, um, when I start my <laughs> own business or whatever and strike it rich, I won't need them. Um, right. And so I'm not going to vote for politicians that, that defend them. I, I think something like that is going on there. Um, well, and I it, think it, it's... It is, it's really tragic. It's structural racism, too, because even if you're a white person receiving SNAP benefits, you're going to say, well, I deserve them. And these yeah. other people, these immigrants, these black people, these brown people, no, they they shouldn't have any of these benefits. That's not why they're here. Exactly. I mean, really, that's to me, that is what it's all about, you know. Anyway, we'll move on because we can't really speculate on the nature of the American public yes. because after all... <laughs> yeah. 38% million or whatever, whatever the percentage was voted for Donald Trump. So, you yeah. know, how's that worked out for you people? I mean, <laughs> exactly. Anyway, what do you think are going to be the most significant priorities? You think it'll just literally stay same, same, or are they going to be a little more imaginative? Like I, I happen to look at these marker bills that are being negotiated for inclusion and there were, you know, the justice for black farmers, which was introduced by Cory Booker, I think, Four years ago, you and I talked about it. Yeah, and then, I mean, and then there was what? There was a lawsuit, and they stopped the payments. What happened with that, Tom? Remind me. Yeah. So, um, so basically, it um, parts of the Justice for Black Farmers Act um, were uh, put into one of the big COVID relief bills. Um, right. The one of the ones that were. Passed under Obama. I'm sorry, under under Biden, not not Trump. It was one of the ones that. It, it was the Inflation the Reduction Act. Yeah. The, the well, no, it was it was quite a bit oh, before that. American Rescue. Yeah, it was a, I think I might have been the American Rescue Act, uh, yeah. which was mostly COVID relief. Right. And um, so it was put in there, 
And, you know, it just, I, I wrote about it a lot in Mother Jones. I mean, it just became part of this ridiculous cultural war. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was woke or something. And, you know, we, we don't have time <laughs> to go into the whole awful no. history of the USDA treatment of black farmers, the fate of black farmers you know, over the course of the 20th century under right. USDA policy. But let's just say it's an egregious story and you can Google my name. There's been a lot else written about it, um, but I, I've written some stuff on it. And, um, and and it's just an awful history. And this bill, this this um, debt relief of about $5 billion, um, you know, was a very small fraction of the amount of money that was, you know, basically taken away from African-American families over the course of that century. Yeah. Um, there was a recent study um, reckoning it at something like, a quarter trillion dollars, um, you know, $250 billion. You know, I'm giving a rough figure there. And, right. and that was probably a lowball estimate of, you know, basically wealth transferred from black families to white families over the course of the 20th century due right. to USDA policies and farmland. So this is a, a tiny, a not even, and actually it wasn't even trying to redress that. It was just saying, you know, we have a bunch of African-American farmers who managed to hold out through this awful history. There's a debt problem. Let's um, let's resolve some of that debt. And it was four point eight billion dollars is the exact figure. And the right wing freaked out. It was, you know, the right. same kinds of people that we're talking about. Um, they launched some lawsuits. They got a friendly judge to declare the program discriminatory because um it uh, officially left out white people. And then in later legislation, um, and I think you're right that it was the IRA, um, it makes it back in. So this previous program is essentially nullified by the court. It makes That's it right. back in to the IRA. And in this case, it was to socially disadvantaged farmers. It was that relief for socially disadvantaged farmers. Uh-huh. And, um, and, if you talk to the Cory Booker people, which I did, they said it was as close as you could get to helping out black farmers. And if you talk to the, um, a lot of black farmer advocates, um, which I also did at the time, they were not satisfied with it. No. Um, but I believe that it has um, maintained. And so that debt relief is, is out there. Um, I think this, that it, it was kind of bulletproof um, legally, like you couldn't um, you couldn't claim discrimination. Uh-huh. And I think you know Steve Miller, who was Stephen Miller, who's one of the you know just very most vicious people in the Trump administration, spearheaded really? the effort to kill it. If you Google his name and, and my name, I did a story on that. Oh um, right, I, I will. I, think, I will. That's I. I look forward to reading that. I missed that. I, and I think when you took away the justice for black farmers angle of it, he's sort of lost interest in it, um, uh-huh. e- even though the, the new thing did more or less the same thing. But yeah, this is an ongoing story. And I don't think the current farm bill does much of anything to address it. I think we're kind of at a stasis. I think that, you know, from the Biden administration perspective and, you know, folks in Congress, they did what they could do with this IRA bill. Um, and it, it's just an ongoing situation i think cory booker you know he's not done with it but um, right but you know just the traction for this this uh, current farm bill just isn't there 
Yeah, amazing. They also have, I mean, I won't list all 48 because that would be the end of the show, but they have a Poultry Grower Fairness Act also proposed to go into the Farm Bill. And um, and that, as I understand it, would um, somehow reduce the monopolization of uh, the, you know, the big integrators and also uh, make their practices more transparent. Because as we've learned over the years, you know, they have these tournaments and they nobody knows who what other people are getting for their what prices they're getting for their birds and so on and so forth um do you know yeah. much about that is that does that seem like something that would go in or again are we going to be held hostage to the uh industrial complex in terms of their profits over the people yeah i mean them? it doesn't it's a great um it's a great bill um it doesn't have any chance of passing, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh I mean, you know, this is something that, um, you know, that sort of conventional, like not the sort of tea party slash freedom caucus bomb throwers, but your kind of farm state, the stalwarts in the house, yeah. they have killed everything like this forever for decades. Right. Um, they have. And when the USDA has come up with rules to, to try to help protect um, poultry growers from the big integrators, like you were saying, um, they have managed to kill those rules and in, in they've managed to put language in bills that basically negate those rules. Yeah. And so that is going to be a really tough, tough one to get through uh, the house. But, you know, it would basically just, you know, give poultry growers a lot more of a fair shake in, in getting a fair price from these integrators who at this point, point um have all the power right absolutely predatory then there's another thing called farmland for farmers act which actually i'm going to do a show about in a couple of weeks um and that seems to be that's been something that's been in the works since i if i understand correctly since about 2009 and the object of that <clears throat> is to prevent uh large corporations both american and foreign um like hedge funds or tiaa CREF or bill gates um from buying up you know, huge numbers of farms and then controlling uh, that uh, to the detriment of the environment and to the, you know, to the benefit of their profits. Um, we'll see yeah, what happens. Yeah. That. And that's an, another Cory Booker thing. And, you know, he, he's the sponsor of this current version. And oh, that right. is one that, um, that I, I mean, I don't think it's going to pass in this, um, in this farm bill. But I think it does have some traction. You know, someone like, you know, I did a piece on, you know, uh, billionaires buying up farmland a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. And I went back and found that like in this, I think it was in the 70s, Chuck Grassley, who's, you know, one of the sort of right. great eminences of the Senate. Um, you know, he's just an um, Iowa senator who's been there literally forever. Um, and um you know, one of the real powerhouses of the Senate Farm uh, Farm Committee, Ag Committee, I should say. And um, as, you know, as late as the 70s, he was saying, he, you know, he was promoting language in bills that would prohibit corporations from from buying farmland. And so, you know, he, he still has those impulses. I mean, as long as he has a pulse, um, <laughs> which I think is, uh, is barely at this point. Right. <laughs> He, he does have these impulses. Um, and so, you know, it's something that I think that you could, 
um, play to the Xeno, you know, you can sort of play to the xenophobic tendencies of some of these people. Yeah. Um, to bar foreign ownership of farmland and maybe get something in progressive about also restricting these hedge funds and insurance funds that you're talking about from. I, I, so it's just something I, that I see potential traction on going forward, but probably not in this farm bill. Jesus. And what about funding for new and, uh, you know, BIPOC farmers, you know, black indigenous people of color? Like, no, that's probably not going <laughs> to. Well, you, there'll, have there'll you be, seen any language around that? No, I mean, there, there'll be, you know, the usual small amount of fund, funding for new and beginning farmers, but I don't think there's going to be any special consideration for BIPOC farmers because that would be woke and that would, um, right. quote, I'm putting that in. Um, in no, I, I know what you ma- mean. <laughs> major square quotes. And, uh, and that would, you know, inflame these um Freedom Caucus types even more. And so I just, yeah, that's not a thing for um, for this farm bill, I guess. Right, right. Um, I'm going to take a short break here for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Tom Philpott talking more about the farm bill, which won't be passing anytime soon, but we all should be paying attention. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin certainly knows their cheese. The only state that requires a license to cheese They take the craft very seriously. That's why this year, Wisconsin Cheese is hosting the very first Art of Cheese Festival to celebrate all things curds. From September 29th to October 1st, you too can join the Jubilee. Over the course of the festival, you can learn how to pair cheese like a pro. Art of Cheese is thrilled to offer classes on pairing cheese with wine from the industry's leading sommeliers, cocktails from spirits experts, chocolate, and coffee. Yes, coffee with cheese from a former cheesemonger. At Art of Cheese, you can level up your artisanal cheese-making knowledge with a curds-on deep dive amongst the cream of the crop and celebrate all things cheese by dancing the night away as the bell of the Wisconsin Cheese Ball. You won't want to miss out on finding your next favorite cheese at the party of the year. Head over to www.artofcheesefestival.com for your tickets to Pastured Paradise. Okay, so I'm going to skip ahead and talk about... um, in that series of 48 marker bills, which are basically the wish list for the progressive political body, um, I didn't see anything that addresses the supply chain issues that we saw during the pandemic. Did you? Um, the couple of things that I saw were ones that um, that enact, you know, do stuff like invest in regional slaughterhouses. I think one of the, you know, obviously one of the big mm. problems with what happened in the pandemic was our our food chains are so consolidated that when a couple of, of, of plants, of giant pork or beef or chicken uh, plants had big outbreaks of COVID among their workers, um, you would see just really gross dislocations like, you know, this giant slaughterhouse is closed. Um, so all the hogs being grown to supply it are getting too fat, getting too yeah. big, I should say. And let's euthanize them all. And then you had these, um, you know, the industry trumped up shortages and used, used that idea to, you know, jack up prices, but they really had, you know, frozen stock that they could have um, oh, yeah. moved in. But we can all agree that, 
just, you know, having more, um, you know, regional and local slaughterhouses would, would help that. And there is, I think there is a, a marker bill that would, that would add to that. There's also one, I think that indirectly, um, would help with this. And that is that, um, you know, the, just this exact thing I talked about this, the pandemic sweeping through slaughterhouses and sickening a bunch of workers at the same time, um, many of whom died. That's a problem with the supply chain. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we, um, that, that workers are, are treated that way, that they, that they are subjected to something like the pandemic, not protected by their employer from the pandemic actually makes supply chain weaker. And Booker has, um, let me see if I can just find it here. Um, Booker's got a bunch of cool ones, but including the Farmland for Farmers Act that you mentioned. I didn't see anything specific about uh, protecting workers. I'm not sure that would be appropriate for the farm bill, but I didn't see any marker bills that could either be standalone or incorporated but I could have missed that. I, I mean, I did see the thing about processing. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. It's the agricultural justice act. Oh, right. Um, and, um, and uh, Kassar who's a uh, representative Kassar who represents my old former district of, in, in Texas, uh, has come up with this and, um, it would, um, require, um, decent working conditions. I'm not exactly sure of the details of it, but I've written quite a bit about, you know, the way OSHA basically has thrown meatpacking workers to the wolves yeah. in terms of, you know, really fast line speeds and things like that. And that is really related. When you give companies that kind of power to abuse workers mm. that they've gotten over the years, then when something like the pandemic um, comes through and, you know, God knows we're probably looking at more pandemics in the future. Then, um, then you're 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 basically making the supply chain more fragile because if a bunch of workers get sick in a plant and the plant is enormous, then you're you're causing a big snag in the supply chain. That's right. And so yeah, those are the things that I would I would say you know directly and indirectly affect the supply chain. Right. Well, we'll hope that that somebody thinks enough of those ideas to, to make that happen. What about stuff like, you know, we, let's talk for a second about rural development, because of course that's a big talking point for the Biden administration. And, and when, but when you read guys like Art Collin at the Storm Lake Times in Iowa and, and other sort of Midwestern uh, progressive uh, editorial page authors, um, you know, they always say, well, they, they pay lip service to the idea of rural development, but then nobody ever votes any real money into it. I don't really even know what they mean by rural development. Do you, are they, I mean, besides broadband access, what else are they talking about? You know, it's basically broadband access. Um, and, you know, this is something that, you know, you've been following the farm bill for at least 14 years, if you've been doing the show for that long. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's something that we hear about, like, oh, is this big priority? We're gonna, you know, we're gonna have funds in this thing to, um, you know, to improve rural broadband access, which we can all agree, you know, is, is really important. And there's a, you know, it, this is the dominant uh, part of the rural development title. Um, 
that has been in the farm bill since 1973. <laughs> um, and, and, and yet, and so I can at least remember rural bo- broadband talk with the development title since the 2005 fight. Yeah. Um, so this is when rural, when broadband starts to become a thing in American life. Um, and, um, and, you know, here we are in 2023 and something like a quarter of rural people and a third of people on native lands, on Indian reservations, right. lack access. And so I think this these piecemeal programs where we offer these loan guarantees to providers, I mean, I think what this ends up being a real problem of is that we've handed over internet infrastructure to a big, a few big companies mm. who are there to make a profit. And, you know, obviously these rural customers aren't profitable that, you know, it's, you know, there's not a lot of population density. Yeah. The infrastructure is expensive. Right. And I think it's just something that instead of offering, if, if we want rural broadband, we just need to deliver it. We just need, the government needs to, to go in and deliver it and, and stop with these, um, you know, halfway, you know, market-based efforts, which have been going on for decades now, and we still, you know, have so many people that lack um, that lack access. And then, you know, I think our, you know, to your bigger question, I think our colon is right. There just isn't a whole lot in, you know, another big one is, you know, water and wastewater development. Oh um, yeah, you know, making sure that. People have access to clean drinking water, um, which is obviously, you know, extremely vexed and, you know, not happening in a very effective way in places where, let's say, industrial agriculture is taking root. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be the Central Valley of California. Um, the entire state of, of Iowa. <laughs> yeah. I mean, huge parts of the Corn Belt. Yeah. yeah not just Iowa, um, but other neighboring states in Iowa. Um Rural residents often rely on wells. The wells are polluted. Um, putting on the farm bill, you know, once again to provide grants to small water um, agencies, you know, it, it's not very effective. Um, and then, you know, there are these, you know, small business loans for rural businesses. But you know, someone like Art Cohen, who I'm sure you've had on the show many times, Is that, he's one of my yeah, favorite I mean, guests. I love him. He's a great he guy. He really had, yeah, and he really has a a vision of how rural economic development works. You know how you um, you get a, a vibrant account, economy in a small town. Yep. And none of this stuff has you know much to do. You know, none of these programs really do any of that. It's you know, like he says, it's all pretty much lip service. Um, and and one of the things that isn't acknowledged is that the commodity titles, the titles that sort of incentivize this, you know, mass production of corn and soybeans and, and, and stuff like cotton in, uh, in the South, along with corn and soybeans, you know, they, and also these giant consolidation of meat packing, they lead to rural disin, uh, like undevelopment. Yeah. They, they, they sort of drain rural areas of economic resources by basically depopulating them. Yeah. And leaving the only jobs behind, like low wage meatpacking jobs, and uh, and so that's a way in which, you know, one part of the bill devotes, you know, you know, ten, five, ten, fifteen, twenty billion dollars a year to, you know, the sort of propping up this mass production, and it is, um, 
it is absolutely devastating economies in rural America. And this other part of the bill throws a few pennies and, you know, is still talking about rural broadband in 2023 <laughs> um, after right. all these years. And, um, and so, yeah, it, it is just a really frustrating situation. It's really, uh, you know, the it's it's very discouraging what's going on. I mean, I, I can only hope. I, I, I we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap it up pretty soon. But I want to get to this talk about conservation, better practices, climate smart agriculture, which you and I have discussed. You know that whole um, partnership and grant uh, proposal that Biden has put into place uh, through Tom Vilsack, our USDA secretary. Um, uh, where uh, basically all of the big players, Corteva, Dow DuPont, et cetera, get giant chunks of money to invest, uh, engage in what is called climate smart agriculture. Um, but I don't see that it will produce any fundamental changes in their practices. So just as a hypothetical, Tom, what do you think would truly revolutionize our agriculture policy that would affect real progress in responding to climate challenges. Okay. I have an idea for you. And this is an idea <laughs> that I kind of got from Sylvia Secchi, who is a oh, professor yeah. at University, yep. University of Iowa. Um, just an amazing thinker. Um, and I ran this version of it past her and, and, and she approved of it. Um, I might write, a, write something about it at some point, but okay. So the fundamental problem with the farm bill and the environment is you've got this huge catch of money going in to prop up this large scale production of, right. you know, a few commodity crops. And it's done in a way, as I show in my book, that is devastating the landscape in a place in the corn belt. It's basically, yep. we're basically losing topsoil at an alarming rate in, in the corn belt. Um, and we're, pumping money into propping up the practices that are doing that. Yeah. And then, so that's the sort of commodity and um, crop insurance titles basically combined are, are, are doing that. And then we've got the conservation title, which devotes a fraction of that money, uh, a fraction of that amount of money into practices that theoretically counteract that, that force of, you know, this, these incentives. And the result is the status quo of absolute ecological devastation, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, Most definitely. And, and so it really doesn't make any sense. Um, it's like, um, I don't know, just um, paying people to litter and then hiring a guy at a very low wage to go through and pick up the litter and he gets like maybe 2% of it. Right. And <laughs> that's an excellent analogy. And then we're like, why is there all this garbage everywhere? You know, like, <laughs> right. What's going on? Like, why is that guy picking up more or whatever? And so the idea would be to align these two things. Instead of letting them work at cross purposes, you could align them and you could say, okay, if you want these goodies, if you want, you know, your commodity subsidies and your, you know, subsidized crop insurance that is, you know, basically another subsidy, you can have them, but you've got to, sh you've got to show us that you're adopting conservation practices. And right. then maybe we'll incentivize you to go further and do even more conservation practices and you can get even more money. 
But the baseline is that you've got to show that your your system isn't polluting water and um, eroding it's, topsoil at right. alarming rates. And the little proxy that I came up with, um, and I'm not married to this, I, I've discussed it with people, is what if you told farmers that you could have this stuff, you know, you're corn, you've got 5,000 acres of corn and soybeans in Iowa. Okay, you can have your, your subsidies, but show us your plan for keeping 80% of your land covered in the off-season months. And right. You can do that with cover crops. You could do it with um, crop rotations. Like I'm going to put a big chunk mm-hmm. of my my acreage into winter rye or winter wheat. You could do it with permanent pasture. You're going to run some animals through it. You could do it through agroforestry. I'm going to devote a bunch of my land to, you know, fruit trees or nut trees. And I'm going to, Mm -hmm. you know, mix my corn and soybeans, you know, in between the rows of this stuff. Yeah. Um, you do it your way, but show us your plan. And then, of course, it would have to be enforced. And Sylvia has written a lot about how bad enforcement is, because there is a thing called conservation compliance on highly erodible lands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's done a paper uh, showing that the USDA doesn't really enforce these rules. And so resources would have to be put into enforcement. Um, and that's you know definitely a thing that has to happen. Um, but. I think the way to revolutionize farm policy is to take these two things that work at um, at odds with each other, that your sort of commodity titles and your conservation title, and bring them into some sort of holistic, like we want to support farmers, we want to keep farmers in the land, we want to end this, you know, this decades-long trend of consolidation of farmland. Um, and, you know, people getting, you know, pushed out of the business and, you know, their land going to ever bigger farms. We want to end that, but we also want to preserve land. And so let's have a safe, a farm safety net that also ensures that we're holding soil in place and we're not polluting water. Right. Uh, and I think, and, you know, let me just say, like, every, all the harsh political realities we discussed earlier um, that's not going to happen in this farm bill. It would take a revolution in politics to make it happen. But I think that is a way to think about it going forward. Like, what is the North Star? And I think it might be um, bringing these policies into some kind of, um, you know, synchronizing these policies I, right. is what I'm trying to say, I think. And and what's popular to me about that idea or what I think could make it a saleable idea sometime in the future um, is the fact that we're, you're not saying we have to break up all these big farms, which I mean, it, of course, my opinion is that we should. But nevertheless, you're not yeah. you're not saying you're not saying, oh, we're going to get rid of all these big farms and drive food prices up and, you know, put everything back into the hands of the small to medium sized farmer. Like nobody's going to go for that. Right. Nobody. So, you know, but this actually has a chance of appealing uh, even to the big players here, um, both because they can increase their profit margins. And 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 ultimately, you know, you keep degrading the land. You're not going to be able to maintain a profit margin on that land, which is why it's important to have real farmers doing the work instead of corporations. I will say that the, uh, some of the big players will hate it really bad. And that is because <laughs> if you go into a system that 
uses biodiversity that kind of favors crop diversity, that favors something like agroforestry, then you're talking about um, a fraction of the need of agrochemicals, of fertilizers, of True. pesticides, of herbicides. And so if you're a Corteva or a, mm -hmm. a Bayer a Crop Science or mm -hmm. a Syngenta, mm -hmm. you're not going to want that. Um, and, the, you know, of course, the Farm Bureau, which kind of organizes the very biggest farm, you know, very large, largest scale farmers are sort of aligned with the Farm Bureau, uh, who are also aligned with those companies. They have very, very successfully made any kind of regulation taboo. True. Like if, you know, like we're going to we, we demand our, our our subsidies, but anything that we do with conservation, you're going to have to bribe us to do it. Right. Um, you're not going to you're not going to require us to do it. Yeah, we're right. going to do it because you bribed us. Um, or because it's a public have, relations move like that. I mean, that's yeah. basically what all this stuff is. Yeah, about. basically as well. But they um, but they have successfully made any kind of anything that even smacks of regulation a taboo. I was I was talking to this guy, um, really interesting character named uh, I just became aware of him, Jonathan Coppice. C-O-P-P-E-S-S. -S. Have you heard that name before? No, I have not. He, he's a professor at the University of Illinois, and I think he's got um, a history of working at, at the USDA. And um, uh -huh. he has written a, um, a really good book, uh, History of the Farm Bill, that came out in 2018 that I just now heard about, called The Fault Lines. And it's a hi history of the Farm Bill. And, um, and, and in fairly plain English, um, you know, not, not super jargony, um, yeah. I'm just now reading it. Um, but I, I, I floated this idea with him and, you know, he said that, you know, like, even though it, it isn't directly regulation because it's, you know, it's totally optional. Hey, if you, you can opt out of this, you don't have to take the subsidies. Right. right? Um, right. But because it suggests like, you know, there is a, a stick it's not just a carrot. There's also a stick, which is you don't get the subsidies. The Farm Bureau is going to fight it tooth and nail. They're, you know, allies in Congress on both sides of the aisle will fight it. Your, you know, Tom Vilsack would, you know, have a probably have a heart attack if um, <laughs> <laughs> if someone, um, you know, said this was, was the new policy we're pushing for. Uh, it's just so far out of the you know, worldview of these people sure. that it's a non-starter, but, um, but at the same time, we got to shake things up and, yeah. you know, we do yeah. have a new generation coming into Congress. People like this, uh, Greg Kassar of Texas, who is on the house ag committee. Right. Um, and, you know, we've got people like Cory Booker who is, you know, open to all sorts of new ideas and, you know, things can't go on like this forever. No, you know, they can't. Chuck Grassley, um, is, may he not will be die. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he will die. We don't know when, but it will happen. Yeah. I mean, the idea yeah. that these guys—we have to close now because we're way over time. But, but just—I mean, the the idea that people are saying Biden is too old and yet Grassley isn't—he's eighty-eight. He's eighty-nine. Right. Yeah. You know, or I mean, come on. I think Diane yeah. Feinstein <laughs> should be ushered out. I mean, I don't understand why Nancy Pelosi is running again, except that I think she feels like the place is falling apart. I mean. It's time. Move on. We need term limits. We got to get. The, you can't keep or doing some, this. Something. Something. I, I don't know about term limits, but something. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we got to close now. Tom, thank you so much. 
uh, best of luck uh, in the future months. And um, we'll be talking again sometime soon, I'm sure. Take care now. All right. And okay, thanks to my sponsors as always. And, uh, and to my listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.